Blog Talk Radio. Wild Radio, and this is Patty Holstrand, and we're on live. And we still waiting for our guest, but until then, let me give you a real fast, uh, brief description of him. He's written on a, a wonderful book called Einstein, Relatively Simple. And he has written, of course, a couple of other books, but uh, this one's interesting because as most of you know, I've always been interested in physics and always been interested in time travel specifically. So we just really wanted to have him on here to, to talk about the exceptional clear explanation that he's giving of the special and general, general relativity. It's for people who always wanted to understand Einstein's ideas but never thought it possible. Full of humor, enthusiasm, and rare clarity, this entertaining book reveals how a former high school dropout revolutionized on concepts of space and time. Well, we've been interested in E equals MC squared and everyday time travel. Two black holes and a big bang. The book takes it all, regardless of the scientific background, on a mind-boggling journey through the depths of Einstein's universe. Ira Mark Agdahl, I certainly hope I'm not crucifying his last name, is also the author of e-book called Unsung Heroes of the Universe. And a popular science writer for D DecodedScience.com. He's a retired aerospace program manager with an undergraduate degree in physics himself from the University Northeastern University. Mark now teaches lay courses in modern physics at Lifelong Learning Institutes in Florida, and also also teaches at the University of Miami and Nova Southeastern University. He also gives entertaining talks on Einstein and, and time travel. And I do believe that he's on the line, so let's just check on him. Hello? Hello. Hi, Patty. This is Mark. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm glad Very you're good. here. I, yes, me too. Thank you for inviting me. So you want me to call you Art? Let uh, go ahead and call uh, you Mark, Mark. My name, my name okay. is Ira Mark Eckdahl. I go by Mark. Okay, that makes it simpler. <laughs> okay. So we, you know, I gave a little bit of uh, of a, you know, letting everybody know who you are and what you do. Um, tell us uh, something about yourself that wasn't in your regular bio. Uh, something about myself that wasn't in the regular bio. Uh, I was an aerospace aerospace engineer and program manager for for like 35 years before I retired. I worked on things like the Hubble Space Telescope studies. Uh, I worked on the Keck Telescope and a lot of fun things for NASA, but most of the work I did was for uh, DOD. Wow, that's, that's terrific. So how, how did you become interested in this subject? 
Well, I studied physics in college, and although we had mostly traditional physics, my last year I had a little bit of modern physics, the physics of the 20th century, and I fell in love with it, and I've been in love with it ever since. And since then I've been reading mostly on my own on Einstein and, and, and quantum mechanics and those the, the modern physics uh, ideas. Well, good. Um, we were talking about going through your book, and so you you were talking about you know the fact that uh, you were inspired to write this this particular book. So, can anyone tell us about that? Yes, it's interesting. Um, I found the biggest inspiration I got was from Einstein himself. As mm-hmm. I was kind of going over his life. I I found something that I think a lot of people don't realize. I think a lot of people think Einstein was just so smart that he sat down one day and thought up relativity and wrote it down, and that was it. But nothing like that. He spent 10 years trying to think up special relativity, his first theory on on time and space. He started at the age of 16, and it wasn't until he was 26 that he finally came up with a theory. He spent another 10 years trying to come up with a new theory of gravity, what he called general relativity. So uh, it was a lesson to me that persistence is even more important than talent. Mm. And that's one of the things that helped me get through writing this, this, this book. Now, I know that he worked in a patent office. And I had yeah. thought about that before, thinking that it was kind of a men, you know, menial job. But, you know, I've, I've known some pretty brilliant people in my life who actually worked, you know, usually wound up being a security guard. And, you know, while they're doing their job, they wind up writing a book. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you think it's kind of like that, where with the fact that you know he really kind of needed something to obviously to uh, obviously to pay his bills, but yeah, uh, what ha- it was something easy enough for him so he could actually focus on something else. Yes, it's true. Uh, he, when he graduated from college, he had he had uh, made his professors so angry because he was so arrogant and and because he studied on his own and didn't do what he was told that they wouldn't give him a good reference, so he couldn't find a job in, in the universities anywhere in Europe. So he got this job in the patent office just to pay his bills. He had a, young, he had a wife and a young son, and, uh, but it was good for him. He was so bright that he said he, took, he did his patent office work in the first two or three hours, and then he spent the rest of the day working on his physics. And if somebody came in the office, he would take his physics paper and shove them in one of the drawers and pretend to be working on the patent. <laughs> <laughs> And it yeah, you <laughs> you kind of have to do that, you know. Um, yeah. So it took quite a quite a few years for him to actually come up with the idea. Um, yes. Would you like to tell tell us how did he break away from the fact that you know here here he is working a menial job, and suddenly thrust into the limelight of of having this extraordinary idea? Well, what happened was, uh, as I said, he spent. Every waking hour, basically, thinking in his head about his physics. And when he finished his patent office work, he would work on that at the patent office. When he was home with his wife and children, uh, he would be thinking about his physics. He was one of those people that was obsessed with it. And he thought about it, for, like I said, for 10 years. And suddenly it dawned on him, and he realized what was going on. And it came to him that time is relative. And that was the key to unlocking the whole theory. And uh, so he published a paper in 1905, and he was, not, he was someone that nobody had ever heard of. And it took about three or four years before people started to realize that this paper was remarkable and his ideas were remarkable. 
and he worked at the patent office for at least four years after he published his paper before he finally was recognized. Mm-hmm. Do you think that in, if this happened uh, now with the Internet, do you think that he would have been noticed sooner, or do you think that matters? Uh, yeah, you would think so because the you know everything in the internet goes around the world in, in a half a second, you know, and I think it, it would have been yeah I think it would have taken taken hold a lot faster today than it was then yeah. Hmm. That would have been interesting. Uh, so why did you write this particular particular book? Well, I was when I retired from aerospace, I started teaching uh, courses in modern physics to people that have no background in physics. And uh, I found that in one particular area, I had trouble finding a book that would work for my students. I wanted a book that was comprehensive on relativity, but I also wanted a book that they could understand, and I couldn't find one that, that, that had both. So I figured, well, I'd better write my own book, and that really was the, the start of writing this book. Well, I find a, a lot of books uh, on the theories of, of Einstein have, uh, you know, uh, too much of the information about the formulas and not enough about you know everyday how do you how does that apply to something that could that you know layman could understand um so you wind up you you get submersed into a book and then you wind up it's just like i you know what i can't understand this and so that's one reason why you decided you know you're going to write something that that maybe people understand that don't have you know mathematics Right, exactly. What I did is I modeled the book on how I teach, and how I teach is with very little mathematics. I teach ideas, I teach concepts, and I find that if you're interested and uh, you know you just think about it, you'll get the concepts. And I try to, as you said, I try to use everyday examples as often as I can, so people get a feel for, for the ideas, for the concepts. I also talk a lot about how Einstein came up with his ideas, because I think understanding how he thinks helps us understand his theories. I think that's really true. Um, I often say that, you know, after meeting an author, uh, I understand their writing a lot better. Uh, it's a whole new level of understanding, and uh, I, I found that to be true. So I think you're absolutely right when it comes to that, and it would be really fascinating to be able to sit down with, with Einstein one day you know, if we if we went back in time. <laughs> oh, that'd be something. I would that kill would be to something. be able to do that. <laughs> um, and that's kind of funny because we we were considering a, a actually a television show uh, based on based on a a bar that actually goes through time. And <laughs> seriously, we did. And so if if we had one person that had Einstein in uh, there and he was actually working on E equals M C squared. Uh, at one point, he w- wouldn't have the formula right. And so we had like a napkin with the formula not correct. And then one later, where we had the formula correct, and sort of, you know, these, these napkins are like up on the wall, you know, uh, of different cool. people in, in the history who actually came That's through cool. and were able to talk to others. That's cool. So, yeah, I'd lo- oh, I'd love to do <laughs> Wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall there, wouldn't you? <laughs> sounds, like a very, sounds like a very interesting uh, concept to to promote for a program. I think it would be very it would be, interesting. It would be fun. It would be fun. Yeah, uh, and ideas. It would be interesting to have uh, Galileo and, and Einstein sitting there talking. Yes. yes <laughs> what, would you, what would you think they would talk about? Physics. <laughs> 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 I 
Oh, Galileo's eyes would pop out with, with what Einstein would tell him that they discovered since Galileo. Oh, I know. Wasn't that? Wasn't it just? Yeah. Plus, Einstein <laughs> loved Galileo, too. He thought of him as a great, great scientist. So it would be a wonderful thing. To, oh, that would be, I like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> so if they were talking, do you think that they would ever get to time travel and to really just start discussing the uh, the idea I don't know if Galileo would would think of that, but 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 certainly Einstein might bring it up, and it's interesting because what a lot of people don't realize is that time travel is actually something we do all of the time in our lives. Mm. I know that's hard to believe, but we do. It's okay. just that the time travel effects are so small we don't notice them. <laughs> Every well, time you. Move- I'm sorry. Hello. Go go ahead and explain that because I had okay. fascinating. Okay. <laughs> okay. Every time you move, your time runs slower than somebody that's standing still. So when you move away and come back during that motion, your time has run slower. So effectively, when you return, it's as though you've returned to that spot you left a tiny bit into the future. Mm. Now it's a very very small effect billions of billions of seconds for us because we travel so slowly mm-hmm. but if you could travel in a rocket ship at like you know close to the speed of light the effect would be dramatic you could travel out for a year and back and come back to earth and it would be like hundreds of years even thousands of years into the future yeah i've, I've seen some uh interesting uh ideas on that uh the fact that uh if you have two a twin you know a pair yeah, of twins twin. one you probably heard this one where one's on Earth and the other one is actually goes into space and comes back. Um, it's you know either have, either their twins dead or you know really old. I have two twins. Uh, in a, I have a twin story in my book Einstein Relatively Simple that that explains that phenomenon in a way that I think people can understand it. And the point is that um, these are not just this theories. This idea of time slowing down with motion has been verified in all kinds of experiments in laboratories, in atomic clocks, in airplanes, in uh, rocket ships, in satellites. So we know that this is absolutely true, even though it's so hard to believe. And, you know, we're talking about, I know that you're talking about how many, about how, how long it takes to get from point A to point B in space. And uh, you've got to have, uh, we're talking, I had talked to somebody before about bending time, uh, making it so that way you can actually get through a smaller space and, in essence, actually time travel, so to speak, uh, through yeah, a that, smaller space. Yeah, that has, that has to do with the fact that uh, in Einstein's other theory, his theory of general relativity, um, anything that has mass warps space and warps time. For example, uh, if I take my watch and put it on top of a mountain, it runs faster. The same watch in the same conditions runs faster on the top of that mountain than it does at sea level. And by the way, that's been tested many times too. And the reason is that the the lower you are in a gravitational field, the closer you are to Earth, the slower time runs because of gravity. Mm. And that time effect can be used also as a kind of a time machine. Hmm. Yeah, maybe, maybe. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, magnetic fields is something that I thought has always been interesting too. And uh, in the fact that, you know, that's, of course, um, Galileo maybe not understood that, mag- that it was magnetism that was causing some of this, but uh, I thought it's very interesting how uh, the Earth's gravitational pull is, it's, you, you know, it has to do with magnetic fields. Uh, uh, no, is, no, 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 no. No? Okay. No. Sorry. Uh, gravity, Go ahead and explain it to me. <laughs> No, that's okay. That's okay. A lot, a lot of people get this a little different than it is. As far as we know, gravity and magnetism are two separate phenomena. Okay. They're, they're distinct. Now, interestingly, Einstein tried to unite gravity and magnetism and electricity in a unified theory, and he spent the last 30, 40 years of his life trying to do it, but he wasn't able to do it, and nobody has. So as far as we know, the gravity and magnetism are separate. Hmm. Okay. That, that, and of course, that makes sense then. Uh, you know, yeah. the fact that here he was trying to do that and that didn't work. But obviously, it meant that it's not supposed to. Yeah, yeah. Now, somebody, huh. some future great physicist may be able to combine the two into a single theory, but nobody's done it yet. So, why do you think that Einstein was having such a. You think that his, his theories actually were not completely. Uh, not everybody took to it, and well, I think some people still have pro- trouble understanding it. Yeah, I think, well, I think most everybody who studies or tries to learn about Einstein's theories at first, even physicists, has, have trouble believing it. It's both understanding and believing because it's so foreign to how we think. And that's what I love about the physics is it tells us the world isn't at all like we thought it was. It's very different than what our common sense tells us. You know, that time varies, that space varies. And when Einstein first proposed this, uh, he was mostly ignored, you know. And it took, it took a lot of experimental evidence that said that he was right before the physicists even would accept his theories. Now, why do you think that is? I mean, you would think that phys- physicists, I mean, you think that science is kind of like, you know, uh, I mean, it's based on equations. Yeah, but it, it's, they're also human, and human beings have a certain inertia, I guess. And when a new <laughs> idea is proposed, no, yeah. matter, no matter who proposes it, and it's radically different, there's skepticism. And mm-hmm. it isn't until the, the evidence comes in, the experiments come in, that show that this new idea has validity that physicists or any scientist starts to accept it. Huh. It kind of reminds me of, because I, I have a lot of space, space geek friends, and, and each of them have, you know, jumped on certain bandwagon or, or sort, you know, one's on space um, um, elevator, another one's on, uh, you know, something else. So, you know, they, they all have something, that, you know, pet project that they, that they believe in completely. And they don't want to hear your idea of, you know, something against their particular project because that's, that's not their world. So I think maybe well, you know, that might be the same thing with these physicists. They might have some pet projects. It's like, well, if if his theory is correct, then that totally discounts everything that they've been working on. That's that's probably that's probably part of the part of the reason. Yeah, is people tend to get parochial about their own ideas. Mm. Yep. <laughs> because we're human, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you, so you do think that time travel is actually real or could be real? It is real. It's not. That's true. Because you were you were talking you were talking about the little bitty time travel, but are we talking about 
Um, I know you're talking about, you know, that we're all moving, and when we're moving, we're actually, you know, traveling through time. But yeah. I'm talking about the big leaps. The, the big, big leaps, leaps. That's another story. For for big leaps for human beings, uh, I don't know. Someday, if we have technology, uh, rocket technology, maybe with I don't know matter antimatter engines or something wild that we don't have yet, and we can get human beings to move fast enough, like hundreds of millions of miles an hour, then with that technology, the time travel will be dramatic, and mm. if, and, and that that that's a possible future. Okay. Well, so here's your ethical question. Do you think we should be? Should be what? Should we do Tron travel? If, if, if it's physically possible um, on a daily basis, do you think that humans in general should do this? Um, I, I, yeah, I do, I guess. I'm, I'm open-minded when it comes to new science like this, and I think we will if we can. Uh, it still needs to be governed in terms of any new science by ethics in terms of what you do right and what you do wrong, but I think it's going to be eventually if it's technology's there, it'll become part of everyday life. Hmm. That little time travel machine in every, in every kitchen, wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> <laughs> so is it really true that nothing can go faster than the speed of light? Uh, yes. According to Einstein's theory and any measurements we've made, uh, nothing can go faster through space faster than the speed of light. No object with mass. Hmm. And I know there's been a lot of contention of exactly what a black hole is, and I think there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding on that. Can you explain that for us? Yeah. Sometimes I think the word black hole can be misleading. I like the word point star because that's mm. closer to what I think of it as. What happens is you've got this super big giant star, like 20 times uh, the mass of the sun or, or greater. And when it runs out of nuclear fuel, there's nothing, there's no pressure or heat from that nuclear furnace at its core to hold back the gravity. So the gravity from that star makes the star collapse inward, basically, makes it implode. And with that much gravity, with that much gravity in a star that big, it will overcome atomic forces, it'll overcome nuclear forces, and all known forces, and continue to collapse until that all the mass of the core of that star is inside a single point, an infinitesimally small point. That's why I like to call it a point star. And that hmm. point star is where all of that core of the star has ended up. Wow, okay. Wild, um, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 uh it's always been fascinating. Uh back in in high school I tried to take physics but all of the pencil pushers in the class actually went way too fast for me. So oh, okay. that's, that's why I so. wrote the book. The people that want to learn it but, but maybe didn't have the training. Yeah. And I took it in college but uh to- electricity just totally boggled my mind. I couldn't I couldn't wrap my head around it. Uh and so I, I think I failed that particular part miserably. <laughs> well, I think I found electronics one of the harder parts of physics myself, to be honest with you. And my, I think a lot of it is because you know, we're talking about a lot of equations there, and, and I didn't really understand it. It wouldn't apply to anything to me, personally. Yeah, I, think, I think you have to talk to people first about ideas, about concepts. 
And let the equations come, the mathematics come later. Once they understand the idea, then they can understand the mathematics. That's my thinking, and that's how I wrote the book. And from what my students tell me, they find that they're learning things in physics that they never thought they would understand. And, and I'm hoping the same thing will be true for the readers of the book. Yeah, I think that you use some interesting uh, analogies uh, to explain uh, in, in layman's terms some of the ideas, and, and I really appreciated that. And uh, it was something that it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense based on on, on your uh, uh, you know different pictures that you had uh, with okay. your ideas. So it definitely helped. I didn't get completely through the book, and I will definitely want to finish it. Uh, but it's just like it's it's. You set me into a black hole there, so I have to finish it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, so when you were growing up, let's go back and yeah. talk a little bit about your childhood. Did you really get into science, or is it something that you can aspire later? No, I always loved it from from the very beginning. And from on a conceptual level, I always loved science, physics especially. You know, I didn't know it was physics at the time. But that's what I always, always kind of was always thinking about in my head, even as a kid. What were you thinking of? Were you, were you looking at the world around you and seeing like uh, rainbows and wanting to know what is what you know how that was made, um, or would you look out in the stars and think how long it would take you to get to a point from one star one star to another? Yeah, I, I, my my tendency is is the big picture. I'm not that crazy about learning the details. So to me, it was. <laughs> Uh, that's just my nature, you know, and I'm looking at the universe and I'm saying, why is this universe here? How did it get here? Why are, why are we where we are and why is the universe the way it is? And that's what modern physics has the best explanation for in terms of scientific explanation. And I know that, uh, you, know, that you know, I watch a lot of sci-fi and television and, and I've yeah. been able to read a lot of it. And... Yeah. Uh, Eureka is one of my favorite shows of all time, and uh, they they sure do like doing uh, you know different ideas there, and just fascinates me. Sometimes it's like, okay, what do they say? You know, that can't possibly be right. But you know, once in a while, it's like that was the wrong phrase to be using there. But uh, sometimes we're talking about we're talking about black holes a while ago. Do you think that we're really actually in danger of being sucked into a black hole? Uh, no, that's a misconception that some people have because the gravity is so great. But gravity, and Newton said this, and Einstein's verified it with his theory, gravity weakens with the square of distance. Now, what that means is, say you're a certain distance from a star, and the gravity from that star is a certain strength. If you double your distance from the star, then the gravity will weaken by two times two or four times. If you're three times away from that star then the gravity will be weaker by three times three or nine times. If you're four times further away from that star, it'll be four times four or 16 times weaker. So you can see that gravity weakens very rapidly as you go further and further away from that star. That's also true for a black hole. So the, black, the nearest black hole to us, I believe, is at the center of our galaxy, and it is so far away we don't feel any effect from its gravity. So there's no huh. danger we'll get sucked into a black hole anytime soon, which is nice to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the uh, one of the favorite, I think, been used uh, several on several uh, television shows as well as some books on yeah. the 
you know, uh, the, the time warp around the sun. I'm sure it's probably driven you crazy. <laughs> um, so what what would be your take on somebody who's, who thought that was that something that actually could happen? The time warp around the sun? Yeah. Yeah, well, it turns out that, that, that uh, the sun, because it has so much mass, does warp time around mm-hmm. it. But it's okay. still a pretty small amount, believe it or not, because the sun isn't that big in terms of gravity. So that it may, I, I forget what the number is, but it could be a few tenths of a second uh, time warp around the sun. Okay. It's not that big. Uh, if you would go to a black hole, however, that gravity is so intense that the time warp is tremendous. And in fact, if somebody were to fall into a black hole, at the so-called event horizon or the edge of that black hole, time would be standing still as we would see it from far away. Time would actually be frozen. Hmm. Isn't that wild? Oh, that just gives me all sorts of ideas. It's actually yeah. dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, now, I think we've seen a couple of things, uh, a couple of stories like that. Yeah. Um, now, the strange, the strange thing, and this is why time is relative, if for the person who's falling into the black hole, time is running normally. It's only people far away looking at that person that see that person's time freeze. So the person uh-huh. appears freeze at the edge of the black hole and not fall in. From our point of view far away, the, the astronaut, let us say, doesn't fall into the black hole, is frozen in time forever at the edge. But from the astronaut's point of view, time is running normally and they do fall in. Huh? Isn't that that that's so hard to accept? But yeah. So, so you so you so you're thinking, okay, so did he fall in or not? You know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> from his point of yeah. view, he did. Yeah. From his point of yeah. view, he did. But our observations say he was his time was frozen at the edge of the black hole. <laughs> kind of reminds me of that question of of if 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 a trough if a tree falls in the forest but nobody was there to hear it. Did it actually fall? Yeah, that, that's a <laughs> metaphysical question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting question because what do you mean by here? You know, the, yeah. the tree falls and makes vibrations, but the vibrations aren't interpreted as a sound until it reaches a human's ear and brain. So it's an interesting question, yeah. Well, so I was saying is, is that from, again, from the standpoint of who's viewing, uh, the fact yep. that there, there was nobody to view it, uh, did it actually happen? Well, it actually yes. happened according to the tree. The tree said, if, if it could talk, yes, it happened. <laughs> yep. But yep. to everyone else, it didn't happen because they didn't see it or right. feel it. Right. So that's just one of those, yeah, I, I agree. It's just kind of, but, you know, it makes you think. And uh, that's, uh, and, and that's what, you know, being human is all about. Yes, yes. That's why I love this stuff because it makes me think. It gives me a headache. <laughs> yeah. Ah, how can that be? And it just so it challenges all of our beliefs, all of our assumptions about what reality is. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thinking of we're talking about reality, uh, do you think that that could be what uh, Einstein was thinking of when he used the word relative? No, what, it turns out that, that relative is a term that, that 
other people used, and it kind of got stuck in the, in the relativity of theory of relativity, and that is that time is relative. So, for example, um, if I'm moving and you're standing still, you see my time running slower than yours. So my time is relative as compared to your time. That's what he meant. It's not absolute. My time doesn't run the same. My watch doesn't run at the same rate as your watch does. It's not absolute time as Newton thought, and most of us think even now that time is relative, that it slows down with motion and is different for different observers. And that's, where the, the, that's one of the way, places where the term relative came in. Okay? Did you know, did you know that, that the atomic clocks on satellites for the global positioning system run at a different rate than clocks on the ground? Because well, I would think they, yeah, yeah. I have heard something about that before. Want to explain time that? Runs, time itself runs at a different rate up there for two effects. One is because they're moving. These, these satellites are moving with respect to us. That affects the time. And because they're higher up in altitude, which affects the time. And they have to make that correction, predicted by Einstein's theories of special and general relativity, for GPS to work. Oh, wow. So that is continuous proof, or continuous, I shouldn't say proof, continuous evidence support that Einstein's ideas that time is relative are true. Right. I mean, that that's right there. I mean, you know, it's just something, of course, that uh, is interesting, though, that, you know, we didn't really have that uh, going on back when he was around. So how could he prove these theories? Well, first of all, you, you, you can't, what, what physicists like to say is you can prove something in mathematics, but you can't prove a physical theory. Because to technically prove something in a theory, you would have to test it against all possibilities every possible temperature, every possible position, every possible this, that, and the other thing, which is practically impossible. impossible all, yeah. you can do, all you can do really to, is take a theory and have the evidence supported to have it verified. And Einstein's theories have had like 100 years now of evidence supporting it. And it's just, you know, if I were to take every single piece of evidence supporting Einstein's theories, I don't know, it probably fill a building the size of the Smithsonian. Wow. So that it's just an overwhelmingly accepted theory because of nature telling us that that's the way nature works. Hmm. Now, you know, he came up with these major, his major theories when he was younger. And, of course, he was uh, working on uh, bigger things that he had to have trouble actually fall, uh, being able to, uh, you know, finish near the end yep. of his life. Um, do you think that's one reason why he didn't come up with any major theories later, or is it, it that he was busy, you know, doing other things? No, he spent he, 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 at age 26 he came up with his special relativity, which is on time and motion, and time, space, and motion. At 36 he came up with general relativity, which is on gravity, and then for the rest of his life, till he, till till he died in the 70s, I believe. Um, he was in his 70s when he died. He spent almost all of his time on this so-called unified theory, unified field theory, trying to unite gravity and magnetism and electricity, and uh, he couldn't do it. I think there were two reasons. One, because maybe he was older and didn't have that spark of innovation that you have when you're younger. That's mm -hmm. a possibility. And another one is it's too hard, even for Einstein. Mm -hmm. 
know, or that then they was never meant to be together. You know, yeah, technically. or they were never meant to be together. That's a, that's a good point, <laughs> or it could be that. Yeah, because nobody's been able to do it since either. Do you think that he was truly brilliant, or you think that he just had a, a, a instinct and a drive for this specific uh, study? Uh, he had both, which is typical in life. If somebody accomplishes great things, usually it's because of extraordinary talent and extraordinary drive. You know, you need both. Mm-hmm. And he had them. He had both of them. He considered himself very, very stubborn. Once he had an idea, <laughs> not let it go. And he was he's brilliant. A little, a little tenacious but, puppy. <laughs> yeah, and but he had both. He had both talent and and and, and persistence. Uh, I think. You, so, if you met him on the street and talked to him, do you think that he would be <laughs> like a regular person? Yeah. <laughs> or or I mean, after talking to him, would you think, man, he's just too brilliant for me? Uh, well, the, first of all, he, he was a person who had no airs about him. You know, he would talk to the, 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 the person that was, I don't know, the, the garbage man, if you will, the, the, the sanitation person. At the same way he would talk to a professor or to a president. He had no airs about him. That was one wonderful thing. You know, he treated everybody the same, really. Uh, but I do think once we got it talking in about the physics, he would very quickly lose me. <laughs> I know it. <he> <laughs> that's, that's pretty probably true. It's probably true. Yeah. Um, and you would think that hopefully that he would actually be able to perhaps um, you know do what you did, which was you know put it into a layman's terms that uh, that more people could understand. Well, it's interesting. One of the things that inspired me to go out and teach and, and write about this stuff is I found a book by Einstein. Uh, actually at a, uh, a book fair, that he wrote trying to explain his theories in everyday language. I had no idea he even write something like that, but he did wow. it called the popularization. And I read it, and I was thinking, this is wonderful, but it's too hard for somebody who doesn't have physics background. Ah. So, so he had... So, he, so even in layman's terms, he was still brilliant. Yeah, he had trouble. <laughs> and this is common, I mean... For anybody in any field, when you're a real expert, to get down to the level of the person that doesn't even know the language you're speaking, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah he, he didn't quite get there, I don't think. He did a great job, but it was a little little tough going. Yeah, it's uh, and, and again, as uh, you, you want to say this is relative because, uh, for yep. instance, I I talk about publishing and I can I can lose people in a matter of seconds because of the terminology because they're not familiar yep. with it. Yep, yep. And anybody, can anybody can. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and I think uh, everybody in in any specific uh, field uh, has their specific you know terminologies that they use in that particular field. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. that's understandable that we wouldn't. That's one reason why we don't understand it. <laughs> you know, one of the things I try to do in my courses and in my book is to remember that. And not to use a word that, that, oh, of course I know what it is, but that maybe the new reader doesn't, and explain what that word means first so they at least understand the language, the jargon, so they can move forward. I try to be careful to do that to help people understand. Uh, we were talking about, uh, he, he did go over quantum mechanics. Would you, would you explain what that is? Oh, sure. <laughs> 
I know it's a, that's, a, that's asking a lot. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's a whole of, that's a whole other book or two or three. Uh, quantum mechanics is the study of the very small uh, subatomic mm-hmm. particles, uh, the particles that are make up the whole universe, like electrons and quarks and neutrinos, and how they mm-hmm. behave. That's the science of of quantum mechanics. Hmm. And do you think that, you know, I know that he had uh, a lot to do with the very first uh, atomic weapons, and I had yeah. heard it said that he he did not like having been part of that. Yeah, it's interesting in that, well, first of all, he wrote that famous letter to, to Roosevelt back in the uh, early, early uh, I think it was 1939 or something like that, where he basically had heard that uh, you could make, possibly make atomic weapons. And uh, a fellow named Slazard, who was a professor and, and a doctor that he worked with in, in Germany, had come to the United States and told him this. And so Einstein, with his help, wrote a letter to Roosevelt, to Roosevelt warning him that the Germans must know this, and they could be working on an atomic bomb, and we better do something, or the Germans will have one. As it turns out, uh, Roosevelt already knew about this. He knew about it because Enrico Fermi in Chicago was doing work on nuclear uh, fusion, uh, fission, excuse me, nuclear fission, and was telling the United States government, but it was classified. Hmm. So Roosevelt kind of knew what was going on already. And then um, they found out that a couple of scientists had escaped from Germany who were Jewish, a fellow named Pearls and Otto Hahn, no, not Otto Hahn, I forget the other fellow's name, and they... Uh, came to England and said that, you know, our calculations say that you can make a uranium bomb with uranium-238, which is the material you needed, with, very, mm-hmm. with only a few pounds of uranium. Before that, they thought you needed tons of uranium-238, which is very rare. When England found out about that, they told the Americans in a classified report. Mm-hmm. And the Americans said, oh, my goodness, this means that this crazy atomic bomb may be practical. If you only need a few pounds of uranium-238, then you can find that much, and you could possibly make this atomic bomb. And if we know that, the Germans might know that. And that's mm-hmm. what started the, the Manhattan Project in the United States. And mm. as it turned out, the Germans never knew that. They never made that calculation. <laughs> and so they never really got very far at all with the atomic bomb. And when Einstein found out about that after the war, he regretted writing the letter to Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. Because he well, felt, it, yeah. yeah. He felt partly uh, responsible then. Responsible, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's a heavy burden. Oh, yeah. I, I really, because he also, he was an ardent pacifist. Think of this man yeah. who, was, who was a pacifist all his life, writing a letter to the president telling him to make an atomic bomb. That's yeah. how much he feared, feared Hitler. So you're right, it was a very, a ter- I think it was his, the worst moral dilemma of his life. Hmm. And that would probably put a, a damper on anything, yeah, just thinking about, you know, the fact that he was, when he got older, he didn't, he didn't do as many theories. And I thought perhaps that particular pivotal moment may have dampered uh, his ideas. I, I don't know. That, that's a possibility, but I, I'm not really sure. Well, I, I, I'm thinking he could compartmentalize his scientific activities 
from other things. Uh, so I don't know. Hmm. Uh, well, I guess we'll never, well, we never will really know. But I, I thought it would have been interesting. That um, that's, that's an interesting uh, thought. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, we'll never know unless, of course, we do get time travel and we can go back and ask him. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I have heard it said, and I know that you had it in your book, uh, that that's space is, is almost the same thing as time. And I thought, I, I couldn't really wrap my head around that and says, I, will you want to explain that to me? Yeah, I know a couple of people are saying that. I'll try to do it. This is not a concept that's easy to explain quickly. But basically, um, people always thought, Newton and other physicists, and, and most of us always thought space and time are quite separate. And Einstein showed that there's a connection between space and time, that they're kind of linked together. You know, For example, the faster you go through space, the slower time runs. You see? The okay. slower you go through space, the faster time runs. And we know that from our, from our actual experiments that he was right. So there's this link or connection between time and space. And that's what Einstein was talking about. Not that they're really the same thing, but they're connected. Okay, so it's really a matter of the fact that that you have to have, have to have a certain amount of space in order for that time to show differential. Yeah, to show a change. Okay. Yeah, you have to go through space to slow down time. Okay, so it's not that it was really connected, but that... That you just simply have to have space between point A and point B in order to be able to show a time lapse. No, or it's more than time that. change. Time Newton says. Newton says. Well, yeah, yeah. Newton. Newton says that that you know you go through space. It takes a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. What Einstein says is even the the connection is even deeper. The faster you go through space, the more time slows down. So there's a link between the two. And his equations show this. The equations he used for special relativity and later for general relativity connect time and space. And mm-hmm. that is what he was talking about. Wow. That's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, it is. I know it is. Because we, we, and it's because we don't accept or believe. We, we hear it, but it's hard for us to accept or believe that time is relative, that it slows down with motion that it, the faster you go through space, the more time slows down. I say it. No, I understand, I understand that part. It's an it's, 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 uh, application it, of space, yeah. Yeah, application can of space absorb in it. So that's the tough part. So I know you had another book, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that and uh, okay. and what you're going to be doing next, because, you know, that's we want to find out more about uh, what's next for you? Okay. Uh, did you want to talk about the other book? Or did we'll you talk, talk about, about your the... yeah. Let's talk about your unsung heroes of the of the universe because uh, I know that's the book, um, and uh, you probably just did. Were you doing some of that book when you really decided to dig deeper into Einstein and his and his uh, his theories? Yes, yes, I was. Yeah, that was sort of an aside that I did. Uh, it's a much shorter book. And what it is, it's only an e-book form, but what it is is that I, I started to uncover these people that I would not heard of before that did these amazing things, and I felt like people should know about this. You know, these are, are great scientists, great physicists, uh, and, and we should know about them. They were just lost in history to most of us. You know, Henrietta Swan Leavitt was an example, a young woman, a brilliant astronomer, and uh 
she basically figured out how to measure the distance to, to other galaxies, and uh, nobody's ever heard of her. And her, mm. her discovery was the cornerstone, the key to the modern cosmology revolution. So there's an example. Hmm. And that's just something I'm, I'm going to pick up because it's, uh, it's interesting that, yeah, I haven't heard of these people. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking, on, just, looking on your website, by the way. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, good. good. <laughs> uh, another one just to mention is um, uh, one of my favorites, um, Georges Lamatra. Now, when you ask people who discovered the expansion of space, most of us would say, oh, Hubble. You know, the Hubble, the, they mm-hmm. named the Hubble telescope after right, him. Right, right. Well, actually, a few years before Hubble did his work, Lamatra did his own work and actually was first before Hubble. But because he wrote his paper in French in a Belgian mm-hmm. journal that most physicists didn't read, and because he was not one to promote himself, most hmm. people never heard of him, you know? Yeah, yeah. So there's another example of somebody that I thought should be recognized. And Lamatra was both a great physicist and a Catholic priest. Yeah, I see that. That's <laughs> interesting. Found very interesting. And <laughs> That's probably one reason why he was he's obscure. <laughs> yeah, part of it, yeah. And, and he was the first to come up with the idea, as far as we know, of what we now call the Big Bang. Yeah. He's been called the father of the Big Bang, so I thought it would be important that people uh, knew who he was. Yeah, that is important. That's uh, yeah, you know, that's that's only like the beginning of life itself. There. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that, what's? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's all right. Go ahead. I was going to ask you, uh, what's up next after, after you know, you're working on your on getting this book out, more people. Um, what's next for you? Okay, what what I've done is I've, I've taught a new course that I'm that I'm now outlining into into what I hope will become a book. And what it's on is it's called the fine-tuned universe. The mysterious fine-tuned universe is what it's about. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is something that that a lot of physicists now know, but the general public is unaware of is that there are all kinds of parameters in the quantum level, at the subatomic level, there's values, there's values at the size of the universe, there's, there's all kinds of parameters for the Earth itself, which are just right for life. If the expansion of the universe, for instance, was a little bit faster, or a little bit slower, it wouldn't form galaxies the way it did and we wouldn't exist. You know, if... One of the, if the, one, the quantum forces were a little bit stronger, a little bit weaker, there would be no molecules and atoms, and we wouldn't exist. And there's a whole list, like three dozen or so, of these things that if they were slightly different, slightly different, the universe as we know it wouldn't exist. So that's what I want to write the book about, because physicists have discovered it, and uh, some people say it's evidence for a higher power. It shows that these are two these are two extraordinarily coincidental to be accidental. Has to be a higher power. Other wow. people are, okay. other people argue, some scientists argue, well, we're just one of a number of parallel universes. Oh, yeah. That for a wild one. And yeah. ours just happens to be just right for life. And I just find the subjects kinda 
interesting from both a scientific and a spiritual level, and I wanted to be able to explain it to the you know the everyday person and and clear to understand language so that they would understand this this idea this controversy. And I don't take sides. I let I try to let the reader make up their own mind as to what they think is right or wrong. I just want to explain what we understand today. Mm. Yeah, that's it. it yeah. Uh, that, that's always been something that's, that's found uh, fascinating that and, and uh, reincarnation which I haven't wrapped my head around yet but <laughs> um, there is just too many questions you know you start asking questions and, and before you know it you get so deep into it um, that it's you still have trouble you know it's like well do I really really think that'd be true uh, I had something to do with your you know, whatever is that you're, if you're religiously grown up understanding. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you, you have trouble letting go of some of that preconceived notion or, or, or uh, theories that you knew when you were growing up. Exactly. Um, to let that go and, and think of the po- other possibilities. Yeah, and as I said, yeah. I, I try to present the, the viewpoint of people who are religious the viewpoint mm-hmm. of people who are atheists, <laughs> and you know, yeah. give both sides of the argument, and let the reader learn and make up their own mind, because I don't think anybody knows knows for sure what the answer is. <laughs> no, well, yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm not sure if we're we're ready to know everything. <laughs> each so, of us are at different different levels. You know, each of us are yeah. different stages in our development. Yep. <laughs> so the big question is: Do you think that there's life on other planets? Uh yeah. I have no proof. Nobody has found um, evidence for life on anywhere outside Earth. No, even in our own solar system, there's been no evidence for life anywhere. If that evidence comes, it'll be the greatest discovery of the century, you know. But so far, the only life we have found is here on our planet. But the chemistry and the physics is the same everywhere in the universe, as far as we can yeah. tell. So yeah, I always, I always found that to be interesting, that, you know, uh, there's iron yeah. everywhere. Yeah, there's water everywhere. <laughs> there is. There's, yeah. there's carbon chain molecules, the kind of things that form DNA everywhere. So to me, it seems like it's likely, highly likely, that there is life somewhere else in some, maybe not in the planets in our solar system, but maybe a planet in some other, going around another star. You mm-hmm. know, and I think it's it's a matter of just a matter of time before, hopefully, we as humans uh, find it. Now, intelligent right. life. Yeah. Now, intelligent life. That's another story. I don't know how intelligent this life will be. Yeah, it's different different stages of intelligence. I mean, so. Sometimes I wonder about our our own intelligence right here on the earth. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. That's yeah, and you know, some people are just totally brilliant, and and uh, there's people who's like, whoa, you know, I, I didn't. You know, it's hard to believe that we're all on the same planet. But <laughs> yeah. uh, so you got to be open-minded, uh, and there's some people who are not. So uh, that's a shame. Is yeah. I think they're missing out on some some extraordinary ideas, and of course these are all extraordinary ideas. 
Yes, they are, and that's why I enjoy talking about them. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> no, that's no problem at all. I, I, I always found these things fascinating, and, and uh, it just boggles my mind, and I just, just want more. Um, and, uh, of course, I love your book. I have it in, in, in PDF, and so that's something I could continue to read. And uh, and I might email you sometimes and say, okay, what about this thing here? So <laughs> explain this one to me, Mark. <laughs> you can explain any you – can, you can email me any question you like. I love answering questions. <laughs> good, good, good. I do. That, that's just a call. That's a call. Um, so thank you if so I much can. for coming on. You know, I know. And, you, and you, you know, you say, well, you know, you believe this or that. And that's okay, because like you said, you, you give it, you give the ideas, and you let the, you know the person decide whether or not they really can really wrap their head around that or not. Yes. Uh, and and that's that's a good place to that's a good place to start, isn't it? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Thank you so much, because I, I really enjoy talking to you, and uh, I was again loved talking about this kind of stuff. And I uh, hope that you know so those who are listening, and I know that you're there because you're listening in the dark. Uh, I can see some of you sitting there, so I don't think you can get away. Um, and I know you're just as interested in this stuff as I am, because you know some of you I've been sitting in conventions and talking to you in a wee hours of night talking about this stuff. So I know you guys are interested, just as interested as I am. Uh, thank you so much, Mark, for coming on, and we uh, welcome you to come back when you write that other book, okay? Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate and that. No problem. Thank you. Okay. And with that, we'll say goodbye. Okay. Bye-bye. That was Mr. Ira Mark Engdahl, and he, we would appreciate his time and his talent and his experience in helping us to understand all these really fascinating things in the world, uh, some of the things we can see, some things we can't see. And with that, we're going to talk about a couple other things that are coming up, as I always do. Let you guys know, uh, as you probably guys already know, uh, Amazing Years on Comic-Con was last weekend. We had a great time out there. Uh, we were able to uh, see some old friends and see some interesting costumes, and we're able to put some of that online. <laughs> some very interesting stuff out there. And let's see, what's our next thing to do? What is our next thing to do? We're, we're all done with January. And Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day is coming up on February 2nd. That's this Sunday. And we're going to be out at Lo-Fi Coffee, which is right on Main Street and McDonald's, in, right in the heart of Main Street Mesa. And uh, we're going to have Groundhog Day there. We've got the books. we got books to see. And uh, we're hoping that maybe we'll even be able to, you know, see a movie. So, well, movie and books, those are always go together, especially when they go together well. And that's from 11 to, to uh, well, it says at 4 o'clock, but we'll probably kick off, uh, <laughs> so to speak, kick off uh, around 3.30 because of the kickoff of the Super Bowl. And uh, we know a lot of people who might want to go run off and have fun with Super Bowl, so uh, we'll probably check 11 to 3.30. And again, that's this Sunday. And we got a marketing class coming up. 
And... Oh, yeah, Tempe's Geeks Night Out. That's a cool cool event uh, put together by the city of Tempe. Uh, and that's like 4.30 until 9 o'clock, right, in Tempe Block Party area right downtown. Tempe, uh, Mill Avenue. And we're going to be out there, uh, the WAD newspaper and WAD Media, and we were going to have our trebuchet out there. Those of you who don't know what a trebuchet is, it is like a catapult. And we actually have the physical, the physical actual piece tied. They asked us to piece tie because they, they, they don't want us flinging those uh, zombie heads at, at at the crowd this time. So <laughs> we will have the zombie heads uh, attached to the trebuchet, and we will have the trebuchet piece tied. But we will be talking about the development of the trebuchet and how that's put together and how anyone can actually uh, do the same thing. And Donald Chalks, the developer of the trebuchet, will be out there to talk about how fast and easy it is for him to put this trebuchet uh, up and down. You know, able to take it apart and re, uh, re-put it together in 20 minutes. He'll explain how he developed that and... It's well have fun actually seeing the the the, uh, the trebuchet itself. Uh, we've uh, got a little bit of steampunked, steampunked a little bit, so you guys got to come out and see the new uh, new and improved trebuchet. It'd be a lot of fun to see. And uh, so that's on uh, February 20th. Again, we'll be out there from 4:30 to 9. So come on out and find us. And with that, I'm going to say. And we've got a, let me see, another radio show on, on, uh, well, that's kind of ways away. I know we're going to have a couple in between there, so I won't bother talking about that. I do have two more radio shows at the end of February, but I know I'm going to have a couple more before then. So, uh, with that, I'm going to say goodnight. And you guys have a great and wonderful night. And I will see you next time on KWOD Radio. And this is Patty Holstrand signing out.